and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is February 4th, 2022, and we're jam-packed with FDA news this week. First up is the emergency use authorization request for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine in children younger than five. Sarah, we'd been waiting for Pfizer to make this request for a while now, but uh, it wasn't without controversy. Yeah, so, you know, Derek, I think as you um, first reported earlier in January, um, even though Pfizer in December had said that, you know, their um, trial particular in the um, two to four range failed to meet its immunogenicity or immunobridging endpoint, um, and they because of that, they were going to delay their submission of the EUA and test a third dose first. Um, There had been some signals that FDA was trying to figure out a way to maybe um, move forward despite the failed trial faster. And um, so this week, Pfizer announced that they were submitting a rolling submission um, at the request of FDA. It wasn't really clear from Pfizer's, you know, announcement. what had changed there and there'd been a lot of speculation that perhaps the thought process was just that by the time people kids would be given the two shots the third shot data would be done and it would clearly show that worked and they would get this third shot um there's a lot of skepticism if that was indeed fda's plan and fda has issued some comments um and kind of hints that that is not the case, that they're suggesting that um, because of the Omicron surge, there's been a lot more infections, obviously, in children, and that perhaps that has led this study to gather some promising efficacy data, not just immunobridging data um, in children, and perhaps that's what this authorization for the two shots will be, um, you know, based on Again, we don't really know enough right now as to what that data looks like, how much data they have. Is it, you know, statistically significant or clinically significant in any way? Because, again, this wasn't a trial designed or powered, you know, to um, detect efficacy outcomes. This was designed as an immunobridging study. So, um, but we've also had... um, you know, ex-FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb and Pfizer board member, he's also for a couple of weeks been signaling that, um, right, there may be some kind of benefit perhaps to children with this two-shot formulation on severe disease or hospitalization outcomes that FDA and Pfizer have picked up on that might have changed the calculus. But I think right now um, there's just a lot of frustration um, among folks who appreciate transparency and data and kind of understanding what is going on because right now it's kind of like, trust us, we have a good approach here. We're not shifting the standards. We're doing something that makes sense. And I think people just want to um, know more about what's going on here. Obviously, since they have scheduled a February 15th advisory committee meeting with FDA, we should by February 13th at the latest get more data, but I think this interim period is leading to some, you know, public skepticism. That's probably not ideal but in the long term for this vaccine in this age group. So, yeah, I'm 
I'm going to bring back a really old feature from this podcast that we haven't used in a while, and I'm going to call this my head scratcher of the week. Uh, since I know we haven't had one of those for a while, but I mean, I, I'm more worried. I, I don't know if we should worry more about the scientific issues that have been that have come up here, or the fact that this is going the, about the communications problem that this is going to create, whether or not you know the data comes out as we hope it will, and you know the and the everything you know this it it the efficacy is exactly where we we want it to be and so forth and the vaccine is perfectly safe i mean i i, I just i'm i i don't know i don't know how this is i'm, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out or how, how this is going to land with with parents yeah i mean I, like i said i think it's a bit strange to me that you know pfizer's release didn't really hint at all as to what type of new data there was or, you know, and they really pushed this on saying FDA asked us to do this. We did this, um, but we still believe, you know, ultimately the best protection here is going to be a three shot vaccine. And then um, FDA, like I said, made some very limited statements indicating like, you know, everybody take a deep breath. We have some more data and we obviously know, um, you know, FDA is, can be a bit limited in what it can say about a product um, at this stage. And companies are kind of in, have more control over what data they can release and so forth. And so FDA may feel kind of stuck in wanting to communicate more and feel like they can't. Perhaps so this is maybe another argument for, you know, particularly in these kinds of emergency pandemic situations, giving FDA more authority to say something about what's going on here because right I think it's um it may turn out to be all well and good and fine and there's really high quality data available and this shift in approach makes sense but when you have this sort of information gap that persists for a couple of weeks I think it makes people on all sides of things a little bit nervous <laughs> well yes yeah, another one of these situations where the uh in the the science may well be the uh, the 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 correct uh, um, uh, judgment being rendered, but sort of the way it was rolled out just sort of kind of makes everyone uh, question sort of, kind of what's going on. Just like sort of the the arbitrary uh, uh, deadline for uh, boosters, were kind of uh, you know it turns out boosters did seem like they were a very good idea. That's for kind of uh, you know people who were boosted uh, had even lower hospitalization rates and the quite low rates of uh, hospitalization that the uh, people with their uh, you know uh, uh, first uh, two shots uh, uh, had uh, you know compared to uh, the unvaccinated during the Omicron wave. So um, you know that was uh, you know in in hindsight a good idea, but the the way it was were kind of presented as were kind of a a fait accompli before uh, um, you know there was even an application in hand and uh, and the rest just uh, made everyone very uh, um, you know. Uh, 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 upset with sort of kind of how uh, um, how it was uh, um, presented, and I think that this is the same thing happening. Like it's sort of a, it seems to be this sort of kind of uh, you know uh, uh, at a certain level they've decided that they're going to have this uh, um, uh, the the vaccination uh, EUA for for uh, kids under five, and then sort of kind of they can't quite sort of kind of uh, get it together in terms of sort of kind of how the uh, FDA or the the government writ, writ large sort of kind of uh, um, you know, uh, presents that to uh, um, to everyone, and it's frustrating. And maybe it's sort of kind of a uh, um, a legal issue, like you're saying, uh, uh, Sarah. But maybe it's more sort of a public relations strategy that they need to uh, refine in some way to uh, to make it uh, um, 
make it uh, uh, more palatable to people that uh, they know what's going on and it's going to be uh, um, a good thing to do. Well, and I mean, and people weren't happy with kind of the the routine we were in with the you know the vaccines before. I mean, it was like it was kind of like we would get a what we would get a press release saying the trials. You know, this is what this is like what the top line data was from the trials, and we'd get excited about it being the efficacy being ninety plus percent, whatever it was, and then. After that kind of died down, we'd be, you know, wondering, okay, where's the rest of the actual, where are the actual numbers at? And then we'd see some numbers, then we get, you know, then it would go to the FDA and then the FDA would kind of, then the FDA would make their decision. Well, we're, we're not, we haven't even seen any, we haven't even got like the press release, which nobody likes to see anymore. So I, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I'm. I'm I'm still confused on and how this rolled out and I, I'm guess I'm assuming I'm hoping it's a logistical thing like you said Matt but yeah I'm uh, yeah I, I don't know. <laughs> and that, well, and the other thing with the Pfizer um, Pfizer's initial announcement from December was they they just sort of said they didn't hit their endpoint but some people are saying well we don't really know how I guess how badly the miss was right. Um, particularly given that the, um, you know, the Pfizer vaccine and these mRNA vaccines ended up being a lot better than the standard FDA initially set for them, right? So I guess there's some people that sort of are thinking, well, maybe the issue here is okay. It didn't immunobridge to the same level of, you know, protection we were expecting, but perhaps a lower level might be fine in this age group. Hopefully I'm explaining that scientifically correctly, but <laughs> I guess that's that's sort of, I guess, another thought process I've seen people say is like maybe. Um, okay, it didn't right. hit 90. It didn't hit 90 percent, but 60 is still really good. Yeah, right. I like guess that. Is, yeah. Is, is that perhaps the case here? But again, I think just like the the, t- the open time for speculation and for people to wonder, you know, is, is FDA pushing this? Are political leaders at the White House pushing this? Because obviously we know that um, there's certainly like, I think there's clearly like groups of parents um, with young children that just kind of like want a vaccine and probably like no matter what FDA approves, they're going to be happy about it. And there may be a lot of political pressure to kind of have that offering for some people. Um, it's it's a little bit hard for me to understand that because you, but I, I suppose that's like, it's just hard for a lot of people to independently judge this. So they just kind of assume once FDA is comfortable with clearing it, it's good. But Well, and they're all, and they're also trying to boost the overall percentage of the population in the country that's vaccinated. And this is an untapped group. So, you know, a, along with the, you know, the five to 12 year old, range which is still kind of low but i think they're you know they they're they want to get you know get that that percentage as high as they possibly can in the hopes of you know avoiding more kind of you know spikes in in infections like we've been seeing the last you know this past month and at the same time we also saw the fda give full approval to the moderna uh, covid-19 vaccine in patients 18 and older um but uh, sued sue the label didn't quite match the provider fact sheet. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing about that. <laughs> no, and it still doesn't. <laughs> so the EUA fact sheet back in November, um, FDA quietly added 
some language in it in the warnings and precautions section. Um, language related to myocarditis, um, stating that there may be an increased risk of myocarditis um, following the second dose of Moderna relative to other authorized or approved mRNA vaccines, aka Pfizer-BioNTech. Um, so that language was added back in November in the EUA fact sheet, but now that same language does not appear in the label for Spikevax, which is the brand name for Moderna's vaccine licensed under BLA. So there remains uh, this discrepancy between the two labels. And FDA says that what FDA has since told me since my story ran a couple days ago is that there were uncertainties in the data on the potential differential risks of myocarditis and pericarditis following the different um, mRNA vaccines. So this kind of statement should not be included in the formal labeling for spike vaccs. However, FDA has determined that the information on myocarditis in the warnings and precautions section of spike vaccs labeling fulfills the relevant regulatory requirements. So the warnings and precautions section just reflects the exact same language as is in the um, community um, warnings and precautions section about an increased risk of myocarditis and pericarditis. There's no comparative safety language in either of the two labels. <clears throat> I was going to say, so essentially what FDA is saying to you is that there still may be a concern that the Moderna vaccine is associated with higher rates of myocarditis. It's just that they would have to have more assurance of that before putting it in a formal BLA label. Yes. Yes. So the jury, it appears, is still out. It's an interesting uh, regulatory dilemma. Like you obviously want to communicate through kind of everything you know, but then, you know, I think it's important that we're kind of uh, FDA maintain a standard that through sort of, uh, especially for kind of comparative data between products that you're going to be held to a very high standard. Uh, um, sponsors have often complained that sort of uh, FDA has a, you know, one bar for efficacy data and sort of then sort of a lower bar for sort of potential risks that sort of kind of, you know, everything gets sort of kind of, you know, added into the label, whether it's uh, validated or not. And this could be an instance of sort of kind of a, um, FDA feeling that that's a that's a sort of a valid point. That's sort of kind of that the uh, the data that they have is you know is is data, but it doesn't reach sort of kind of you know the, the BLA standard for what should be in a uh, uh, approved label. Right. So, I mean, it definitely appears to be a lower bar for what they're willing to put into the EUA labeling as opposed to what they're willing to put into the BLA label in terms of safety information, at least. So are you supposed to use both the lab the actual label and the EUA fact sheet now if you're a physician? <laughs> I mean, no, I'm I mean, I'm 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 asking that seriously. I know it's funny, but you know, I I, I would I I my nat my logical thought process was the EUA fact sheet shouldn't be necessary anymore once it gets full approval. Well, not everybody is going to have the formal branded spike vax in their office at this point. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. And technically, Spikevax is not approved for a booster or for a third dose for somebody who's immunocompromised. So those uses are still covered by the EUA. All of the uses are still covered by EUA, 
but those uses in particular do not appear on the BLA label. It just seems like, again, thinking about um, communication confusion, yeah. that this is this is not helpful to have <laughs> different yeah. um, different fact sheets for labeling and out there and without very clear explanation. And um, I don't know, it'll be interesting, I guess, to see. We know um, our colleague um, Brenda is covering the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices Review of the um, BLA today if this issue comes up at all there. Um, but yeah, I mean, as a physician, I would imagine if a patient was concerned about this and trying to make a decision um, as to whether they should pick one vaccine over the other because of this risk, this would just add to their confusion. Yeah. There are going to be um, some presentations at the ACIP meeting today on um, not just myocarditis with the Moderna vaccine, but also um, vaccine safety data link um, data on uh, myocarditis rates after both of the vaccines. And they're also going to be discussing um, some data on extending the period of time between the two primary doses. Uh, it appears this data is from Canada. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But I guess Pfizer really is in the same kind of situation as Moderna is, right? Because have most of their, I mean, they're, they've been approved for adults, but they aren't, they don't have all the approvals for children yet, officially. Correct. So, so you're still, you still have to consult the, the fact sheet for all those other uses and the booster use and so forth. Correct. Right? Yeah. Exactly. But for both of the vaccines, even the uses that are now approved under BLA still remain under EUA because FDA hasn't wanted to take that away. I believe my, my memory of the Pfizer approval was they didn't want to take away the EUA protections because, you know, like I said, people might have EUA covered vaccine in their office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they kept those in place. But there weren't any differences between the like the Pfizer, the official Pfizer label and the that departed from the fact sheet, though, right? Other than the non-covered uses. But I mean, they didn't have this problem like Moderna uh, did. I admit I've only compared the warnings and precautions section on myocarditis <laughs> between the two, and those were identical. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, the myocarditis issue, you know, I think also played a factor in sort of kind of how Pfizer's BLA was uh, approved. Uh, you know, it, it was for 18 and up, not the 16 and up that the initial uh, EUA was for. And I think part of that was a uh, consideration of uh, myocarditis and perhaps, uh, you know, consent issues in uh, um, in adolescence. But I, I think I did notice something, Sue, in your story that the, um, like the age ranges where they're indicating like the most concern for myocarditis is slightly different between Pfizer and Moderna in the labeling. Yeah. Yes. So in the spike vax labeling for Moderna, they say the highest observed risk was in males 18 through 24. And in the Pfizer label, um, the highest observed risk was in males 12 through 17. Now, uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech product is the only one that's been available for use in the 12 through 17 age range. So 
Um, Moderna, you know, has still not been authorized below 18 years of age. Yeah, they've been lagging behind in their adolescent uh, trials. Yeah. And I'm guessing some of it has to do with the myocarditis um, uh, issue. Right. I believe that's what came out at the beginning of the year, either the end of December or beginning of January, was that their that review of their adolescent authorization was being delayed by FDA's evaluation of some myocardi myocarditis data from other countries. Yeah. And of course, in addition to the, the ACIP meeting today on the Moderna vaccine, the FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting is going to meet on February 15th to talk about Pfizer vaccine in children under the age of five, which I'm sure will break the internet because everyone will be so excited to watch it. Uh, needless to say, we can't wait for that one, but uh, we'll be certainly be following that and looking for more data in the interim uh, as we wait these last couple, this last, what, week and a half. <laughs> Next up is another sort of head scratcher. Uh, states are defying FDA recommendations on COVID-19 treatments. Um, Sarah, you looked at this for us. What, what did you find out? So, yeah, I guess a, a couple, a week or two ago now, um, I thought it was interesting that the governor of Maryland essentially said they were do, working with um, Johns Hopkins, I think, on a study to see if patients or people in nursing homes needed an additional fourth mRNA shot. And he was basically saying, you know, we hope the federal government will kind of be recommending this shortly if there's a need, but if not, we'd just go it on our own anyway. Um, and, you know, some, a few other countries and places in the world have been giving out additional um, shots. So it's not like completely out of the, um, you know, the realm of possibility, I guess. Um, but, what was interesting was when I raised the question of, you know, well, can they, could they really do that if they wanted to? Um, you know, some people who have worked on the original drafting of this, the, some of the regulations around the pandemic um, and liability for EUA products and how EUA products got approved seem to think they likely could do that um, without facing much risk, particularly if you're talking about a product, giving out a product that has a BLA where there's some amount of off-label use. Now, of course, we do know that right now these products are being distributed by the government. Um, and so they have this like sort of second layer of the CDC provider agreement that technically permits like or sorry, not permits, doesn't permit any off-label use at this point. Um, but we also know that CDC doesn't necessarily seem eager to go after um, folks in that regard. For example, um, prior to you know mix and matching of boosters being formally cleared, San Francisco was very publicly offering that option to folks who got J and J. Um, and now San Francisco, even more recently, has said they're going to offer J&J recipients who I think still feel like they're sort of this third vaccine wheel and people aren't thinking about them a third shot because, again, there's always been this assumption J&J might maybe should have been a two-shot one. So then if you only got two shots of J&J, are you really boosted now? Um, but yeah, it's just interesting. A lot of the legal experts I talked to said that Yes, in theory, there probably are ways 
the federal government could go after states or other entities who are, you know, administering vaccines or COVID therapeutics in ways that they're not really cleared for now. But there was a lot of skepticism, depending on exactly what they were doing, that the federal government would do this. Um, now, perhaps again, it depends how scientifically egregious they think the move is. So like I said, most people felt like probably if Hogan um, in Maryland just wanted to give out more shots in nursing homes, people wouldn't think a federal government would probably more or less turn a blind eye to that. But, you know, we know more recently in Florida, um, the governor there has been frustrated by FDA's decision to pull some of the um, monoclonal antibody treatments because they don't work on um, Omicron. And if he sort of had supply of that and was trying to give that out anyway, that was seen as something that might be more seen as more egregious and maybe they would try and exercise some power to stop it. But it's just interesting to me because, like I said, we focus so much, I think, for us and our jobs on what FDA per allows and permits here, um, particularly in the booster debate. And it's interesting to think that states might have some more flexibility to do what they want. So is yeah, there... it's a... Go ahead, Dirk. Sorry, I was going to say, so I mean, what what kind of power does the federal government have if, say, like Florida just says, you know what, we've still got plenty of these monoclonals, come and get it, you know, even though we don't know, even though FDA doesn't know if it works. Right. So I guess people were saying like one interesting thing about this, the sort of the EUA pathway, which these products are cleared under is there hasn't been a lot of like case law around that. So if Florida had the products and they were sort of administering it for a use that's not no longer in the EUA, the formal FDA, like could FDA go go after them sort of for, you know, some kind of fraud, I guess, there, um, essentially, or some kind of, you know, um, not administering, basically administering a completely unapproved product. Essentially, like what would be the, the um, that sort of, threshold for FDA. Again, there's probably billing questions. So if you try to submit to, you know, a federal government program for reimbursement, that could probably get the state in trouble faster. Um, again, these products have sort of been provided free from the government. So if you just sort of don't worry about the costs of administration or something or don't submit that to the government, could there be ways to get around that? Possibly. But it just seems like there's a lot of situations or there's a lot of things in kind of the law and regulation around emergency use authorization products in particular that just have never fully been considered or tested um so just a lot of this leaves open a lot of legal probably scrambling if people try and sort of push the limits yeah it's a uh, uh obviously uh something that uh, DeSantis seems to be doing uh um, for political reasons, this were kind of, you know, to bolster his brand within the Republican Party, uh, uh, at least I would argue, uh, I said obviously, but now I'm sort of kind of pulling that back and putting a uh, personal analysis caveat on there. Um, but uh, um, it's uh, uh, a question as sort of, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, federal judiciary sort of moves towards more sort of federalism, sort of kind of giving uh, less power to the federal government to uh, um do things that we're going to states will probably have more uh, um, more role in this. I mean, we saw uh, you know a very interesting uh, 
um, debate to kind of roll through the states uh, a couple of years ago on, uh, you know, biosimilar uh, 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 substitution and uh, um, interchangeability and sort of kind of what, uh, um, you know, what does an interchangeable uh, uh, biosimilar entitle a, um, a pharmacist to do? And, you know, obviously sort of that's probably not going to play out uh, in its most acute until there's a uh, there's a big product that's sort of kind of really sort of kind of puts those uh, um, uh, mechanisms to the test and, uh, um but it's a, uh, you know, an increasingly uh, important issue, I think, for uh, pharma firms to think about. It's kind of what do individual states, you know, regulate, be that on, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, cell therapy, as we're kind of these clinics are kind of trying to argue that they're, in fact, not drugs and shouldn't be regulated by the uh, uh, the FDA, and uh, or if, uh, um, you know, Republican uh, uh, governors are going to want to defy uh uh, you know, dem- uh, democratic sort of, uh, you know, sort of COVID, uh, um, COVID methodology and sort of, kind of what they can do, uh, um, you know, for a uh, um, for a product. So it's uh, um, it's something that I think uh, we'll have to uh, pay more and more attention to about sort of, kind of how uh, um, you know FDA regulations uh, inter interlock with uh, state regulations. Uh, um, you know, beyond uh, biosimilars that I mentioned, uh, you know, the, the whole compounding question has been. Uh, has been big and through kind of that's a again you can see another uh, um, court fight about that if kind of FDA really wants to press a uh, um, a compounder there's probably going to be a uh, another court case on that despite the fact that there's been that federal legislation to try and clear up that uh, that question so uh, um, it is something that I think we'll have to keep our eye on yeah and I should mention that you know people I talked to um, said like if the drug companies here um, like Eli Lilly and Regeneron, like knowingly sold their products to DeSantis in Florida, knowing he wanted to use them in ways the FDA wasn't recommending, though drug companies would probably very clearly be in violation of, you know, certain federal regulations and could lose their their protections, um, their liability protections that they get um, under the PREP Act that sort of governs emergency use authorization products and so forth. So there'd probably be more risk to pharma companies, um, depending on how this was playing out at the state level. But again, since the federal government is sort of distributing, that's not an issue right now. Um, but I think a lot of people in particular are really interested in this, like, this idea that, like, FDA and the CDC have sort of said, well, there's really no off-label use of the, um, even the BLA'd um, vaccines because of the um, provider agreements. And I think there's there's various groups of people that feel like that isn't appropriate, particularly given, you know, maybe some people do feel like, you know, your kid is four and a half and they don't qualify yet for the vaccine, but perhaps they're high risk and maybe the trade-off there based on an individual physician is they should get vaccinated. And, you know, um, so I think um, I'm particularly that end of things. I could see there um, being more kind of political pressure to think about how that works going forward. Right. I would suspect if I were uh, had to make a bet that the uh, um, government does not, uh, the federal government does not press this case and does not try and sort of kind of uh, block uh, Santos and uh, uh, DeSantis in some uh, um, in some way on uh, um, on this. I think it would just be a uh, a bad uh, a bad look, and they don't want us to kind of uh, you know wade into this uh, um, this fight. They just want everything to go back to normal and uh, um, people to uh, um, just not think about this uh, 
this stuff anymore. There's not uh, not a whole lot of political points to be won for the federal government by trying to sort of crack down on uh, um, providing uh, um, uh, uh, the, the treatments. So uh, um, I, I imagine it's not going to uh, um, continue to uh, um, to burn as brightly as it has now, but uh, um, you never know. Yeah, the, it seems like the FDA has more important issues to use its resources, whether they're legal or investigative or whatever, uh, you know, then but then something like that. But uh, you never know at this point, I guess. Finally, today, we're going to look back at the demise of the controversial opioid Zohydro ER, which was officially withdrawn from the market this week after more than eight years. The move was buried in a list of several other routine withdrawals, which doesn't really illustrate the ire that the drug caused for FDA officials and stakeholders. The FDA approved the product in 2013 as the first single-entity extended-release hydrocodone product, thinking it was an important option for training pain. But the move came over objections from its advisory committees and opioid groups. And right after the approval, Massachusetts banned prescriptions, and a bill was introduced in Congress to force a withdrawal of the approval. The product never really gained a significant market presence, but remained a subject of angry questions from members of Congress for years. Senator directors, as well as the FDA commissioner candidates, were asked repeatedly about the approval, and even current commissioner nominee Robert Califf was asked during his confirmation hearing whether the decision was correct. So for the panel, I don't know if there's anything that uh, you know, you, you're going to be remembering about Zohydro specifically, or you just kind of letting this one, uh, you know, this another product that just ends up leaving the, uh, leaving the market? I thought the most interesting line in the story um, Brenda wrote was that, um, you know, the drug never really took off commercially and that um, I think Brenda wrote, indeed, it always seemed more an emblem of what critics thought was wrong with FDA's approach to opioids than actually a contributor to the epidemic in a significant way. Because, again, I think if you think about the the attention lawmakers paid to it and how much of a problem it was for Rob Califf, certainly his first time getting confirmed and so forth, you would think that, right, the product had led to certain, you know, impacts on sort of the pandemic or, the, sorry, the opioid epidemic in the U.S. And, um, right, it's interesting to see that it actually maybe in some ways the concerns about that maybe fueled the lack of market uptake or so forth. So maybe um, despite, maybe it's a little bit of a case of like an adjuhelm where despite FDA approving it, um, doctors and others maybe reacted in a different way to the product and didn't use it. So I just thought that was like an interesting point that even though it's gotten so much attention, um, you know, it never had the impacts people were worried about. Yeah, it felt to me like for the last uh, business as usual, uh, um, opioid approval by FDA and sort of, you know, they've obviously, uh, um, you know, changed their explicit policy in terms of now, uh, um, assessing public health issues when they, uh, um, approve the, uh, um, opioid products, uh, as opposed to just for kind of the, uh, individual, uh, safety efficacy, uh, trade-offs that they, uh, they can see in the, um, the clinical trials. And, uh, um, it did, as you're, as you're saying, Sarah, sort of kind of be, uh, sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, was sort of the uh, I, I don't know if the the, uh, the 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 last uh, um, I, I was going to make a Vietnam analogy, but that seems uh, um, in poor taste. Like the last, uh, um, yeah, the uh, 
the last product to sort of kind of to to be approved as a mistake. Uh, um, but that I, I I think that's a uh, um you know sort of the, the John Kerry uh, the John Kerry line from uh, um after he came back from Vietnam. But it's 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 in a sense for kind of the idea that sort of not that uh, FDA sort of kind of didn't want to admit that it, there was a problem, but sort of FDA was unable to do. Uh, anything aside from kind of how they had traditionally approached all products, which is sort of look at the, um, you know, the patient level and the data in front of them, and then this sort of kind of uh, um, seemed to have uh, contributed to them uh, finally uh, um, changing their approach to uh, um, how they approved uh, um, how they approved opioids, and we'll see sort of uh, um, another sort of advisory committee on the uh, um, on the 15th that's coming up. This uh, uh, these questions about tramadol and sort of kind of what. Uh, um, what might be happening with uh, um, with that will be sort of another uh, another uh, indication of sort of kind of how FDA has changed its approach on uh, um, on pain management. Yeah, I'm a little I, I'm a little curious if this will keep coming up, you know, on Capitol Hill, and you know, and I, I joke about that because it you know the same. It seems like at least once a year the same question keeps getting asked over and over, and the you know the FDA officials kind of have the have to kind of. They either recycle the answer or, you know, we, we listen close enough that we notice a little bit of change in wording and, and so forth and how they approach the the decision. But I, I just wonder now that it's off the market or that it's discontinued and off the market, if they're, you know, how, how they'll answer the question this time, if it'll just be it's off the market now and I'm not talking about it anymore. Or, you know, is there is there still kind of a, you know, a line of questioning that they could, you know, that uh, people can take, uh, you know, related to this still? Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 